Jewish audio on Chabad.org. Okay, so we're learning the Megillah. And we have gained insight into Ahasuerus' background, where he comes from, how he's developing his, his monarchy, why he moves his capital, and the kind of party he throws. At this point, we're going to take a look at a party that was going on, a parallel party, a parallel event that took place just uh, across the hall. Pasuk Tes, verse 9 of the first chapter, Gam Vashti Hamalka Osta Mishte Noshim. Not only did Achashverosh make a party, but his wife, the queen Vashti, also made a party. Beit Hamalchut, this party was in the house of royalty, Asher Lamelach Achashverosh, which belonged to the king Achashverosh. The Ibn Ezra points out that Beit Hamalchut really should be, it's like, it means Hanimtza Bibbeit HaMalchut. The Beit HaMalchut, if you want to fully understand it, it doesn't mean, it means in, Bibbeit HaMalchut. But sometimes in Hebrew grammar, we'll say something like, Vashti HaMalka made a party, Beit HaMalchut, in the house of royalty. What's the emphasis on Vashti making a party in this house of royalty? So there are a number of interesting things the Medrash tells us. Previously, we talked about the decor. It was a nice decor, fancy benches, and there was uh, some beautiful hangings. And then we said that uh, we talked about the drinking. We talked about the food that was being given. To the ladies, it just says Beit HaMalchot. So the Medrash says that the guys are interested in the booze and in the food. The women are interested in the, in the decor. So therefore, Vashti knew she'd wow everybody by bringing them into the palace itself. Hashverosh had this garden party. He dressed it up, made it very nice. It was an enchanting place, but it doesn't come to what Vashti did. She let the people into the inner chambers of royalty. And the matter says that, that they actually were uh, asking, where does the king sleep? Uh, where, do you, where do you guys eat? What, all questions about their personal life. This is, uh, you know, in today's day and age, they have this uh, billion-dollar industry of knowing exactly what celebrities do, when they do it, and how they do it. So that was like, very interesting for the ladies, to be there, to be in the royal house, to be in the royal bedroom, to see everything, to ask questions about everything, and Vashti was featuring this tell-all party. So that's the idea of Beit HaMalchut. The, the, the Malbim says that in order to appreciate this party, you have to understand this verse in the context of what he explained in the previous verses. Namely, let's just refresh our memory. He talked about the idea that Achashverosh is, is a man who's trying to create a new empire. He's not fitting himself into a government that existed before. He doesn't intend to comport in accordance with the Constitution. He's going to write his own laws. He's going to do his own thing, and everybody's going to follow Achashverosh's lead. In order to do that, he moved his capital to the city of Shush, or Shushan, and he built a new palace, everything starting all over. Everything is new. Everything is fresh. No connection to the past. He's not bound by previous etiquette, agreements, or laws. Now, in, in the rise of Achashverosh, the trajectory of his rise begins with his marrying the princess, the daughter of Belshazzar, granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar. What's his claim to the throne then? His claim is Vashti. Obviously, he doesn't like that. He doesn't like being where he is because of his wife. First of all, he doesn't like being where he is because of his wife, period. 
But besides that, <coughs> he doesn't like this connection <coughs> to the past. He's a very cynical fellow. He's simply using and abusing Vashti. He swept her off her feet. He married her. He got what he wanted. And now he's moved past her. Now he doesn't care that she's the granddaughter of the, of the emperor, of the Vuchadnetzer, or the daughter of the former king. Now he is establishing Achashverosh's country. So he makes a party. And usually when you have a state dinner, you have the king and the queen welcoming everybody. Where's the queen? There's no queen. It's all about Achashverosh. She's not even invited. It's only the guys. They're having a wild time. They're drinking. The only women that are there are providing adult entertainment, as we discussed in la last week in the previous verses. So Vashti says, okay, I'll make my own party. And in an act which is really an affront to Achashverosh, she says, I'm going to bring the ladies into your bedroom. I'm going to tell all. This is going to be, uh, this is going to take away your dignity. And this is going to provide the counterbalance to what Achashverosh is trying to do. In other words, what the Malvim is telling us, if you want to understand the beginning of the Megillah properly, you must come to the realization that there is a tug of war going on between Vashti, between the queen, and between Achashverosh, who is the king. And there's a lot of deep political bickering that's behind the scenes in the story that's going to unfold. Now it's going to start to make sense. What Achashverosh wanted, why Vashti refuses. So the Malbim says that you see sometimes it says Vashti Hamalka and sometimes it says Hamalka Vashti. For example, here in verse 9 it says Gam Vashti Hamalka, Vashti Hamalka, Vashti who is the queen also made a party. However, later on when it says that uh, she, should, she should bring Vashti, he also says bring Vashti Hamalka. But in verse 12 when Vashti says I'm not listening to you. I'm not coming and prancing around uh, in the nude for your friends. It says, Vatamoyin Hamalka Vashti. Says the, the Malbum, what's the difference? Vashti means the person, the individual. Hamalka, that's an add-on. So he said, you're Vashti. I married you because you're beautiful, not because you're royal. Whatever, you're a, you're a queen because I make you a queen. Vashti's response is, oh no, I'm Hamalka. I'm the real royal here. I have royal blood. You're the imposter. So that's the difference between Malka Vashti, Vashti Hamalka, or Hamalka Vashti. And, and the Malbim points out that that is exactly what was going on here. That's the backdrop against which Vashti is making her party. She's trying to buck this, this, this circumstances that are being thrust upon her. She says, well, I, I can also do something. And she's like, I can also. She's, she's, she's in a reactive rather than offensive position. She's not setting the tone. She's reacting to the realities that are unfolding around her. And, and because that's the case, she wasn't invited to the big party, to the big ball. So she had to make her own party. That's why it says, Gam Vashti Hamalka. Vashti, who is only the Malka as an add-on, has to make party Mishte Noshim. It doesn't say a party of, of, of royalty. It doesn't say a party of ministers. Mishte Noshim. She just got the ladies around her. That, that, that's, all, that's all she was able to get because the guys were at another party. And, and what is Bebeit Hamalchut? The, the uh, Malbim echoes the sentiments that we find in the Medrash that she did this in Bayit Hamalchut itself. And what is she trying to show? She's trying to show it's my palace. She's trying to show that I'm really the kingmaker. Your party's out in the garden. Your party's out is in the courtyard. I'm bringing the ladies into the palace. This is, this is my gig. 
I'm really the royal, I'm really the one who's setting the tone of monarchy and royalty here. Now, of course, <coughs> if, if Ahasuerus marries her because she's the queen, her physical appearance is irrelevant. She's the queen. <laughs> so she's so royal, she's fantastic. But here, Ahasuerus starts to emphasize that she's beautiful, that she's physically attractive. In other words, I don't care where you come from. It's, you don't bring me any power. I married you because you're pretty. That's all. You could have been a scullery maid for the same money. There's no, no difference to me. That's the, that's the backdrop here. Now we have a little bit of a different understanding. So yeah, now the Vashti makes a, a party, and she invites all the ladies, and this is what's, what's happening as Ahasuerus' party continues. Now the Medrash says that when it says, Gam Vashti Amalka, that means that the, she did similar things to Ahasuerus. Well, what did she do similar? doesn't say anything about drinking over here. And anyway, drinking and getting stoned out of your head, that's usually a guy's thing. So what's the Gam Vashti Hamalka? Well, if you remember, we talked about the idea that Ahasuerus used vessels, utensils, artifacts in the Beit HaMikdash. He mocked the Jewish people. Vashti was doing that too. She also understood that this is the end of the Jews. That's the way, that was their understanding. The 70 years passed. The prophecy is not fulfilled. The Jewish empire will never rise again. The Jewish people will never return to Israel again. And because of this, they're finished. At her party, there were only ladies. She also used those vessels. She also used those utensils. The Medrash tells us that Achashverosh was, uh, was uh, modeling the Kohen Gadol's raiments. So I don't know if Vashti had g- garments. It's the, the only, only one set of those garments. But they were using things which was an act of sacrilege, which, sh- which should have been a stab in the heart of any Jew present. It, unfortunately, they went along with this. And that, that was the great sin of the Jewish people, the big problem. All right, so we have two parties going on, and we have a political tug-of-war. Vashti's trying to assert herself, Ahasuerus is asserting himself, and then there's a climatic moment. By Yom Hashvi, on the seventh day of the party. Ketov lev hamelech b'yoyin. When the heart of the king was merry with wine. Omar, he said, l'mohuman, bizza, charvona, bigsa, va'avagsa, zesar, v'charkas. And the Ibn Ezra tells us that these are all Persian names of Ahasuerus's personal confidants. This was not the royalty or the nobility or the ministers that he inherited from a previous government. These were his people. So he called his confidants, his loyalists around him, the ones who the ones who have absolute loyalty only to Ahasuerus. They serve Pnei. Pnei means the face, the countenance in the front of Ahasuerus. He called his greatest uh, and most loyal servants. And he said, Lahavi, go and bring Vashti, the queen, before the king. Now, we're going to continue on verse 11 in a moment, but I want to go back to verse 10. What difference does it make if this happened on the fifth day, the sixth day, or the seventh day? What difference does it make? It should simply have said, Ketov lev hamelech when the king was feeling really good about himself, he was uh, in a drunken stupor, he said, oh, bring Vashti. Okay, well, what difference? Who cares that it happened on the seventh day? So Rashi says, our sages read into this. They said, this is not, this is not just a, a happenstance. The Torah wants us to know that it happened on the seventh day. Why? Raboseinu, our rabbis, and Rashi here refers to the Gemara in Megillah on page 12, Omru said, Shabbat Hoyo. It was Shabbos. 
Ah, why is that special? What's, what's the point of, of Shabbat Hoya? So as Rashi is going to explain in the next Rashi, which we'll get to soon, the Gemara tells us that Vashti was a vicious anti-Semite. She had it, you know, and, and fun. she earned it fair and square. Nebuchadnezzar was a vicious anti-Semite. This was Belshazzar. And she would force, specifically, she's all kinds of people working in the house. She would force the Jewish girls to work in her house on Shabbat. And to demean them, she would strip them naked. And she would force them to scrub the floors and do all kinds of demeaning work, robbing them of their dignity on Shabbat. That's why this happened on Shabbat. What happened? Vashi is stripped of her dignity. Achashverosh says, I want you to come and show yourself wearing your crown. And the Gemara says, yes, her crown and nothing else. So that's why the Torah wants us to know that there's something called Mida, Keneged Mida. In the same way she abused others, in the same way she persecuted the Jewish girls, that's how she was abused, that's how she was persecuted, that's what led to her untimely death. In the... Um, the, in the Gemara, it also says, The Gemara says he, he wasn't drunk till now. Does it take seven days to get drunk? Presumably, this, this Mardi Gras, this party, people got drunk, they fell asleep, they, they washed up, they cleaned up, they came back for more. Why did it take seven days for Achashverosh to go over the cliff? So Rava says, Yom Ashri, Shabbat it was the Shabbat. And the midah sha'adah modedin, moded, modedin lo. The way you give it out, the way you dole it out, that's the way God treats you. Malamida teaches us that Vashti, who was very wicked, would bring Benot Yisrael, mafshitan arumat, she would strip them. The osim behemalacha b'shabbas, she would force them to do demeaning work on the day of Shabbat. And that's why she was commanded to come in the state of undress. Now there's, a, there's another very interesting Gemara about this by Yom HaShvi. The Gemara says, till, till now he wasn't uh, happy. Till now he wasn't merry in his heart. What, what is the pshat? So the other interpretation, which Rashi does not bring in the Gemara, is that it, this day was Yom Ashvi, the seventh day is Shabbat. What happens on Shabbat? The Jewish people eat and they drink. Some of us don't have time for meals. Some of us don't have time to sit down and eat. Once a week, everybody has time to sit down and enjoy a meal. When is that? Shabbat. So on this day, when the Jewish people sit and drink, and then after they sit and eat and drink, what do they do next? They have a wild party? No, Jewish people they sing Zmirot at the table, sing Shabbat songs at the table. They speak words of Torah. They speak words of inspiration. That's what we do at a Shabbat table. So this is the counterweight. This is the polar opposite. The alter ego of a Shabbat table is Achashverosh's table. Oh, they kachovim the pagans. Oh, they eat. Sure, they drink. But then, then they begin to behave in a way which is promiscuous. And what is Achashverosh looking for? He wants Vashti to give everybody a peep show. That, that was the sum total of his celebration of his eating and drinking. When the Rebbe talked about this once, he said, okay, what does that have to do with Achashverosh? The fact that Jewish people are singing and saying Shabbos songs, like, the, it's not like you have Jewish people on one side who are eating and drinking and singing Zmirot and then Achashverosh on the other side eating and drinking and says, oh, Vashti, it's Shabbos. Come on out. Now it's time for you to do a little dance for everybody. <laughs> what's, the, what's the corollary? What's the connection? 
Achashverosh did what Achashverosh did. What would Achashverosh, why is it important? It seems like Achashverosh almost is reacting. It's like the Jewish people are eating and drinking on Shabbat. They're celebrating Shabbat. Achashverosh celebrates the seventh day or marks the seventh day with his debauchery as well. So the Rebbe said there's two ways to understand this Pasuk. First of all, there's, there's the, a famous uh, commentary that weaves its way throughout the entire Megillah. The commentary is called Eit Yosef. It's based on a Medrash that there's a subtext in the Megillah. And that everything in the Megillah that has a literal meaning also has a spiritual meaning. And every time it says the word Hamelech, who does it really refer to? To God. To Melech Malchem Lachem. And therefore, that's the idea of Shabbat Hoya. This is Shabbat, the Jewish people are singing and drinking, and Vashti is getting her just reward. So that's the, that's the spiritual meaning, that's the Bayom Hashvi. HaChashverosh is doing what HaChashverosh does on earth, and God Almighty is doing what God does on heaven. What brings God, so to speak, Ketov HaMelech Bayoyin Lev HaMelech, that the heart is merry with wine? It's a metaphor. Or any anthropomorphical expression with regard to God is, is metaphoric, it's allegoric. Ken Chas V'Shalom be literal. It means that we bring nachas, we bring joy to God as a person could become intoxicated and could elevate himself and be uh, merry. So Hashem is merry with enjoyment when the Jewish people are living, breathing as they stood on a holy day of Shabbat. But then the Rebbe said, it's nice, but how do you understand the simple pshat? You, you cannot say the Gemara only meant the Pirush of the Eitz Yosef in the way that the Medrash interprets HaMelech always to mean Melech Malchem HaMelechem. So what does it mean? So he says like this. On the simple level, let's go back to what we discussed in last week's class. We said that Achashverosh made a party which was Kiritzon Ish Ve'ish. It, it was in accordance with what you wanted. Nobody was forced to do anything. We said unlike it was the custom at the time that everybody had to drink a certain amount, nobody had to drink. They brought the large cups. From little cups have a little cup. Nobody was coerced into doing anything. And as we learned last week, as the Alshach tells us, that was all very carefully choreographed. He wanted the Jewish people to sin by their own volition. Not that they should say, Achashverosh forced us. No, they chose to sin. So this is the idea, Kiritzon Ishvi Ish. The Gemara in Shabbos says, Kiritzon Ishvi Ish says, Haman, Kiritzon Mordechai Haman. Haman wants the Jewish people to sin and to sink into a quagmire of spiritual depravity. Mordechai wants the Jewish people to be able to rise above the fray to exist within Persian society, to be a part of it, and yet at the same time still to be transcended, to be apart from it. So Achashverosh was very smart. He made the possibility. There was kosher food. Good kosher food. Of course, the non-kosher food is probably better. But it was, with everything, kosher wine, no problem. Everything was there. You had, you could, it could be a Mordechai party. You didn't have to go to the adult entertainment, the red light part of the party. You could stay in the blue light area of the party. Nobody made you go there. Nobody made you get drunk. Nobody made you use the artifacts of the base of Megash. Mordechai could have enjoyed this party. Mordechai didn't go. He knew what would be happening at this party. He knew that the most dangerous and insidious attack on the Jewish people is not when we are forced to, to enter into a, a state of, of, of rebellion against God and His Torah. It's when we're loved to death. That's the most dangerous thing. It's a, it's a very harsh thing to say and a lot of people get offended by it. But it's still a fact that we have lost more Jews to assimilation than we have to the Holocaust. That philo-Semitism can be more dangerous than anti-Semitism. Achashverosh understood this. He wanted to, he was the Napoleon. The Tsar was a, a vicious anti-Semite. 
and he persecuted the Jews. But the Alter Rebbe said, the Tsar is better than Napoleon. Because Napoleon will emancipate the Jews, he will love us to death. And in the end, there'll be nothing left, Chas Shalom. He'll assimilate all of us. It, it, is, it is true what you say. It is true what you say. There was a, a Jewish community in a place called Kaifeng in China. And there were other Jewish communities. And to the best of my knowledge, there was no anti-Semitism. In fact, it was illegal in the ancient uh, uh, China to carry pork on the street of the synagogue. And there are no Jews left from there. No, now, this is, of course, this follows in the lines of the argument that some like to make that anti Semitism is good for us. Please, let's not go there. And uh, we have suffered far too much, and we hope and pray that Akadish Baruch will help us that, that the, 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 we will not have any more anti Semitism and any more persecution and any more difficulty. And we should have peace and security and, and affluence and plenty and every ability possible. But keep your back up. <laughs> That's the point. Understand that, that the wonderful galut can be more dangerous than the, danger, than the, than the, than, than the baleful and hateful galut. And that's, this is really the story of Ahasuerus. This is the story of mass assimilation of the Jewish people. And that's what brought about the terrible decree of Haman. And, and again, I'm not, uh, I'm not giving any answers or reasons, I am merely noting a historical reality that the Jews of Germany were the most emancipated and free Jews of the entire Western world. Nobody can argue with that. Nobody can argue with the fact that the greatest atrocities against the Jewish people came from the very same country. So after we assimilate, and after Rahman we forget who we are, it doesn't work out well in the end. In the end, they don't keep loving us. In the end, they come back in a very vicious way to hurt us because deep, deep down, deep down, our enemies know we are different. And the more we try to say we're exactly the same, the more they start to think that there's some secret plot, this protocols of some elders somewhere. It can't be. They know that we're different. So when we live differently, we're different, okay? They're not our best friends. We have a respectful relationship and there's a certain distance. That is the way we, the Jewish people, would like to live. We would like to live apart. We would like to earn everybody's respect. We would like to contribute to society. But we are not interested in being a seamless part of the rest of the world. We are interested in maintaining our own tile of the mosaic, to use Canadian terminology, and not the melting pot of Americana, not becoming mixed into everybody else. We would take a little strand from every culture, and now we are a new melting pot culture, which is not distinct and doesn't have the particular flavor. No, we the Jewish people specifically wish to remain loyal to the Torah and to the mitzvahs, not to intermarry and not to become a part of the world around us fully. We don't want to be fully integrated. We always want there to be a certain distance between ourselves and between our Gentile friends and neighbors. And that's the way the Jewish people have always lived, if they survived. When those walls came down entirely, either there was terrible atrocities historically, or we simply melted into the background and we no longer were. The Kaifengi community is an example of Jews who simply no longer are. Until today, there are Chinese people who have the word Yuda stamped in their passport. So they are presumably from, descended from Jews. They're not halakhically Jewish anymore <laughs> because they're totally assimilated. The, the, we, all we have left from the Kaifeng Jewish community is artifacts. There's a, there's a, there's a, a Torah scroll and a prayer book 
from the Kaifeng Jewish community in the Royal Ontario Museum in downtown, right here in Toronto. But that's all that's left from them, museum pieces. <coughs> and all, all ancient people have museum pieces, but we are not an ancient people. We are an eternal people. We don't have Torahs in a museum. We have Torahs right here in Shul. <laughs> and, and we're davening and, and celebrating our Yiddishkeit, studying our Torah in the same way our ancestors have. The Torah is the same Torah, without a question, and that's been corroborated in a number of ways. First of all, the fact that different communities that were incommunicado for centuries and even millennia met after 1,800 years, and the Torah scrolls are the same Torah scrolls. We have one Hebrew letter which doesn't make a difference in the meaning that's in question. Petzua Daka, Aleph or Hey, that's all. So the Torah scrolls match perfectly. Secondly, we got a postcard from 2,000 years ago, a few decades back. It's called Dead Sea Scrolls. And guess what? There are no Torah scrolls there. Not a single Torah scroll was found. I believe that it was a library. I think that they took the Torahs with them. When those Jews were, ex were, were exiled, they took the Torahs with them. They left their library behind. And they definitely were not Torah Jews as we call Torah Jews. They believed in some, some kooky, spooky stuff that definitely is antithetical to traditional, what the world calls rabbinic Judaism, Torah Judaism. But their scripture is accurate, and it's the same Tanakh as we have. Word for word, letter by letter. It's the same Tanakh. So yes, we, are, we do have the same Torah. And uh, if you go to, to the Royal Ontario Museum, you can read the Siddur. It's in Chinese brush characters, but it's the Hebrew, and it's word for word, our Siddur. It's last time I was there, it's open to the page of Musaf, of the Musaf holiday, of the holiday service. And guess what it says? It's open to the page. Mepnei chata'enu galino me'artzenu. Because of our sins, we were exiled from Israel. <laughs> There's no way anybody in the Royal Ontario Museum knew which page they opened to. That's the fascinating, that's the sitter, and you can read it. I was there with my children. It was, we had, it was, they had just davened the same davening that morning in Shul, and my children were reading it from the sitter. Yeah. That's why the book of the Megillah is so important, because it explains to us the dangers of assimilation. And what happens? The Megillah happened very quickly, and historically it didn't usually take uh, a, 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 two or three years or even a decade. Sometimes it took decades for this to happen. But the Megillah is a microcosm of the Jewish exilic experience, which is why it's so critically important for us to, to study and understand what really is going on here. So getting back to the Pasuk here, this, well, everything we just discussed, the Rebbe says, will help us understand how and why the heart of the king, Lev HaMelech, was tov, was good, was merry, biyoyin, only on the seventh day. Because on the seventh day, when he saw the Jews enjoying his party, and they had, you know, kind of a, a Gentile Shabbos, he gave them a Shabbos. He brought them Kishka. He probably didn't bring Kishka, but you know what I mean. Like, that, that has changed. He brought them whatever traditional Shabbat food they ate. And, and he made them a Shabbat meal. That's when he felt really good. He felt that I, now I got him. Now I nailed him because they're totally disarmed. I'm, I'm entitled to my personal opinion, and even if you know, sometimes some of our viewers get angry and they send me comments. But I'm going to still going to say what I'm going to say anyway, and it's just my personal opinion. Uh, Jimmy Carter is an anti-Semite. That's my personal opinion. A big anti-Semite. I believe that he had every ill intention for. Israel. I don't believe he <coughs> ever was concerned with the welfare of Israel. I don't believe that the King the Camp David Accords were ever good for Israel or for the Jewish people. Here's something amazing which you never heard. Jimmy Carter broke the strongest Jewish patriot, Menachem Begin. 
Menachem Begin was a mountain. He was a fiery, fiery, devoted Jew. Unbelievable person. Had he broken somebody else, it wouldn't have been as shocking. And Menachem Begin went to the Rebbe before. And he spent a significant amount of time closeted with the Rebbe discussing exactly this. And as, as a fellow named Yehuda Avner, who was an aide of Menachem Begin, has revealed in, in his book, he came straight from Camp David, went straight to the Rebbe's office. The Rebbe debriefed him and everything, and the Rebbe sent him back with instructions that he doesn't talk about. Menachem Begin caved in. So I, I, I recently heard that Jimmy Carter had a file on Menachem Begin. He unleashed the full forces of the CIA to do a full dossier on every day of Menachem Begin's life and to find out his weaknesses and how would they get this kid from Bialystok to cave in. It was a Friday night dinner in the Waldorf Astoria, attended for the first time in history by a president of the United States. Everybody wore presidentially gold stamped, you know, those bar mitzvah yarmulkes, but with a presidential gold stamp. It was Kiddush, Menachem Begin, please Mr. Begin made Kiddush, he made Kiddush, everybody had Lecha Mishnah, and that's where Menachem Begin caved in. Because, he, you know, you make somebody so comfortable, the, the guard goes down. This, to me, this is the story of Bayom Ashvi, when the Jewish people were fully comfortable. Then Achashver started laughing. Then he was Tov Leif. He said, okay, now I got him. They're at peace. They're happy. They're having a Shabbos. You don't belong in Achashver's party on Shabbos. You belong in Shul. You belong with your family. What are you doing in Achashver's party? They were there at Achashver's party. Bayom Ashvi... This gives us a very deep insight into the evil designs of Achashverosh. That he wanted to subdue and crush the Jewish people forever. And here he said, oh, this is good, this is good. Now, now he felt he could establish his monarchy in an absolute fashion. Now, going back from switching from screen to screen, remember Achashverosh has a multitude of different schemes and, and designs. One of his designs is that he's going to get Vashti demoted and he's going to demean her and he's going to ruin her so she won't have this sense of self-importance that she is the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar and she'll know, me, Achashverosh, I'm the king. So now that he's got the Jews subdued, he moves, he sets his sights on his wife. She's the next target. We got the Jews under control. Again, this is, this is my understanding. It's, it's based, the Rebbe basically says this about the Tev Melch I acknowledge that I'm adding my own flavoring to it, and if it, anybody doesn't like that, sorry. I'm, <laughs> I can only teach you Torah the way I understand it. This to me is very clear. So, now that this happens, he calls his loyalists together, and he says, go get her. Now go get her. Lahavi, go to verse 11. Lahavi is Vashti Amalka. Now bring Vashti, Lefneha Melech. How should you bring her? Bekeser Malchus, with her royal crown. With her royal crown. Why does he have to... <coughs> <coughs> you guys have to say it with her royal crown. So the Pashegen, Haksov, uh, paraphrasing the Targum Sheni, says it like this. Go and tell Vashti HaMalka, get up from your throne. Get up from your high perch, from your seat where you think you're this queen of this royal empire. Varuma Tavshiti. And this robe, please. Vesimi keser zav bereshach. Come with a nice gold crown on your head. And the kais zav biyadach ayimonis. You're carrying a, a, a glass, a, 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 pardon me, a gold uh, the goblet in your right hand. 
the Kaizov beyond Smoli, and you'll be carrying a, a gold uh, glass or gold uh, decanter or cup in your, in your left hand. And this is how you'll come, wearing your gold crown, holding two golden uh, cups, two golden jugs of, or, 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 or wine glasses, and let everybody see that you are the most beautiful of all the women. Why does Achashverosh need to demean his wife? The whole thing is crazy. He's the king. He would want her to be demeaned. Maybe you heard about it. I don't even know how I heard about it, but there was like a whole tumble in England. Apparently they captured uh, the, 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 the latest princess, some guy with some zoom lens from I don't know who knows how many far away in a state of undress. In a state, uh, right? And it was published in the papers. There was a huge tumult about it. And the, uh, the Buckingham Palace was not pleased, to say the least. They were fuming about this, right? And then the Michigan Harry, when he was uh, photographed uh, prancing around in, his, in, yeah, in Las Vegas in his state of undress, it also did not bring much honor to Buckingham Palace. So everybody understands that uh, you don't want to have uh, pictures like this floating around of, of kings and queens, celebrities, Mela, okay, this is about the kid. people who consider us as royal leaders of government. It wouldn't do well if uh, the president or the first lady of the United States or the prime minister or his wife all of a sudden had uh, uh, the, the centerfold in some of these magazines. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be impressive, right? So it's, is he crazy? Achashverosh wants his wife to be nude in front of everybody? He wants her to prance around like a bar, like a bar girl, like, like, like a, with, with a crown on her head, holding gold cups naked? This is crazy. What is, what is, he, what is he thinking over here? What is he doing? <coughs> Ah, so, so for this you have to understand, to, uh, to understand this, says the Malbim, well, think, think about what I just told you. This is all a setup. Achashverosh is a very, very wily fellow. He's nobody's fool. Now that he got the Jewish people caved in, now he says, okay, let's bring her. Lahavi. He said, what's Lahavi to bring her? Tziva lahem Lahavi. That they should bring her forcibly. He says, don't invite her. Bring her. Bring her like, 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 a, like, like a servant. Bring her like a, like a sex slave. That's what you're going to bring her. She's going to be forced into this. Like one of his maidservants. And, and how should he bring her? Es Vashti Hamalka. Not Hamalka Vashti. Verse 12 says Hamalka Vashti. Verse 11 says Vashti Hamalka. He says she's Vashti. Oh, by the way, she's the queen. That's secondary. First thing, tell her, remind her she's Vashti. And let her come before the king so that all, everybody will see how beautiful she is. She should come bekeser malchus, only wearing a, a crown. Says the Malbim, what is, what is going on over here? He says, she shouldn't put on the crown until she's here. Bring her nude, and then she can put the crown on in front of me. In other words, why do you have a crown? Because of me, says Achashverosh. I gave you a crown. You are simply a go-go girl. You're a lowlife. I married you, you're a nobody. You have absolutely no standing. When you come here and show everybody how beautiful you are, which is why I marry you, then you can wear your crown. Then you can have a kesem malchus. Now says the mouth, and everybody will see, that she doesn't really deserve to wear a crown. She's nothing more than a porn queen. That's all she is. What kind of queen? I made her a queen. To show the nations and the ministers what she looks like. What's the point? He says, to tell her, you know why I married her? Take a look. That's it. Nothing else. Not her pedigree, not where she comes from, and not who her father was. The, the Malbim himself asks. He says, This is the biggest disgrace. This is the biggest scorning and mockery. 
if he's going to show, show her in such a state of, 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 of un, undignity and, and so demeaned. But that's exactly what he's trying to do. That's exactly what Ahasuerus wants. This is not just the, the ravings of a drunken man. It's very, very carefully choreographed. This is, this is exactly what he planned. The Jews have capitulated. Now Vashti will capitulate. And Ahasuerus will reign supreme. But Vashti is not so stupid. Vashti says, I'm the queen. Hamalka Vashti. She says, lovely, but I'm not coming because he said, if I want to dance around and show myself, I'll do it at my, the time, at my, the, my place of choosing and at my time. Not when he says. You're not going to schlep me in, bring me in there because he's the king. No such thing. Asher biyad hasarisim, which is going to be in the hands of, the, of, the, of, of, of these ministers, not even the highest ministers, the inner circle of his loyalists, his cronies. Your cronies are going to drag me in? If I want to do this, I'll do this when I want to do it. And the, 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 the Mepharshim point out that in Roman times, this was actually not unusual. It was a common thing. In general, in, general in, 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 in Roman times, nudity was celebrated, and it was something that was considered fully appropriate, and that was like a grand display. It wouldn't be so in, inappropriate. She, so the culture already existed. She said, no, no, no. If I want to do that, I do that. Not when he says. The, the Medrash, uh, <coughs> the Gemara says, but we know that she was very promiscuous. We know that she, this, this, this was the currency of her life. That's the kind of person she was. So why, why, why uh, didn't she want to do this? So Rabbi Yaisi Brabchanina says, Malamid that she had this terrible skin disease that suddenly spread all over her. And therefore she was dead embarrassed. There is even a, a the Masnita Tana, the Mishnah said, that Gavriel Hamalach came and she grew a tail. So she looked like a lizard. She looked horrible. She said, I'm not going to go show myself like this. So even she had wanted to do it, she wasn't able. And here Rashi says, this is, this is Vatimoy in Hamalka. Because in Pshuta Shal Mikra, why wouldn't she want to do it? Why wouldn't she want to do it? She's a promiscuous person. And she was showing everybody all kinds of promiscuous things. And she was talking in the most promiscuous way. But she brought all ladies into the bedroom. So therefore Rashi says, Rabbi Seinu Amra, Rabbi Stot, Lafisha Parchabat That she had all of a sudden this terrible skin condition. She didn't look too hot. And because she looked this way, why was this? Kadesha Timoin. So she should refuse? Now, Hashverosh doesn't know why she's refusing because he has a whole plot in mind. The Teharik should be killed. And why? Why does Vashti deserve The Jewish people have to be saved. So why should Vashti be killed? That's not fair. So Rashi says it is fair. This is the Gemara I mentioned earlier. She would strip the Jewish girls out of Shabbos. She would specifically make them work in demeaning jobs on Shabbos to violate them and the Shabbos. Uh, without clothes. Ah, in that case, you try to strip them of their humanity, you'll be stripped of your humanity. So she was going to come in a compromising way, and in case that was what she enjoyed, she had saras. And as you read, the Maslita Tana, Gavril Hamalach, and she had a tail to add, to add it, she looked really like a lizard, besides everything else. So now she was robbed of her human dignity, and she was punished for her mistreatment of these Jewish girls who were her hapless slaves. So now we have a little bit of an understanding as to what has gone on. What, is, what, what has really gone on over here? The Orachaim adds a, a, another layer of appreciation of understanding to, to what goes on here. <coughs> 
He says, it should just have said, Vatimoyin HaMalka, Lovi Bidvara Melech. The Malka said, I'm not coming. Why does it have to say, Vatimoyin HaMalka Vashti, Lovi Bidvara Melech, Asher Biyada Sarisim. Those three words, says the Urchayim, are certainly superfluous. What's the difference that it's Asher Biyada Sarisim in the hand of, these, of the ministers? So he says, <coughs> and he says, of course, why did Vashti disagree to come? After all, she was no uh, saint. She was no uh, super modest person to begin with. So therefore, the Rishon Litzian says, uh, as similar to along the lines of what we're learning, that the Melech wanted her to come to show everybody her beauty and only to come with her crown. But this is not really as a compliment to her, but it was a strike against her. The king sought to demean her. He wasn't saying, Vashti, let everybody see how fantastic you are. It sounds very nice, but really he wanted to say, Vashti, let me demean you publicly. And, and this is Ahasuerus, uh, if the king would send for her, okay, that would be what they call in Yiddish, Ahalbetzara. But this is, this she wouldn't have even mind. King said, okay, it's a royal command. But there's no bizoyin, there's no scorning, there's no, there's no lo- loss of dignity. She's going, it's a, it's a royal moment. She's having a royal moment. Now, she was sent, she didn't say come to the king like that. She said come not for the king, come for everybody else. It's not for the king, it's for everybody else. There's no greater loss of dignity. There's no greater scorn and embarrassment. And that's why it says that's why she refused. That shlichus, that mission, it wasn't the, the, the nudity itself didn't bother her. Vashti was very comfortable with these kind of things. She was a totally debaucherous, promiscuous individual. But that she should come because the ministers are going to schlep her now, that she becomes entertainment for the, for the masses. And who were the masses? They were just, as we learned last week, just masses, just the local populace. That she should come for? <laughs> she said, absolutely not. That I'm not going to go for. And that's why, she, that's why we add those words. And the Orachayim says further, the whole thing is, Ashabiyada Sarisim. That she said, I didn't say I'm not coming for the king. I'm not coming with them. I'm not coming with them. They, I'm not going to go. This is, no, no good. And that's the whole point. The, the bottom line was, though, he did send them. It was Dvara Melech Ashabiyada Sarisim. She was screaming, I'm not going with them. But the problem if you will, was that the Sarisim didn't come on their own. This wasn't their thing. They were coming from him. They were coming from Achashverosh. So in the end, it turns out to be violating a royal edict. Now we understand how these words convey the deeper message. So this is a very fateful moment. Now Achashverosh and Vashti, the Jewish people, by the way, are sank at this point. This is the Jewish people at this point, as the Medrash would tell us, have sealed their fate on Shabbos. That seventh day, was a terrible day for them. But in this very time, it's fascinating, this very lowest moment for the Jewish people, Hashem is putting in motion the wheels for the redemption. Because Vashti out of the way is how Esther comes in. So the same day, on the very same day, Teva Melobiyoyim, because the Jewish people have sank, Vashti is being punished for abusing the Jewish people at the very same time. And Hashem is setting in, moment, in motion, at this moment, the future redemption of the Jewish people, if they will only do tshuva. Which, of course... Hashem knows they will, and we do do tshuva. And that's the story of this confrontation. Next week, God willing, so we're going to see, so how did the king deal with this? This becomes a major challenge to everything he stands for, because this was a carefully choreographed 
uh, moment. And he's moving his kingdom along, step by step by step. And all of a sudden, hits the brick wall, hit the brakes, brakes on. And now he looks like a fool. Now she has asserted herself as the royal one, and he as the imposter. So next week we'll learn what Ahasuerus does to try to counterbalance all this and to try to, uh, to, try to fight back.